to say. I'm out here doing everything you suck as cake. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Keep it Hi, everyone. Welcome to Break Some Dishes. Today is going to be a little different. For one thing, John's not here. He says he's in Washington, D.C., working. Yes, we both do have day jobs. This podcast doesn't quite pay the rent. And I guess he has to show up to work every so often. So it's just me today. And also today, we're not interviewing anyone. We're actually dropping a panel talk for this episode that we did a few months ago. It was so good, we had to share. John and I were on this panel, thanks to Abby Murray, co-founder of Mortar. We were sort of moderator and panelists, kind of wearing multiple hats that day. And Mortar, for those of you that don't know, is a resource for designers, clients, and the industry. It's a compendium of inspiration. There's materials, there's products, and images of projects with all kinds of links and resources all in one place online. And I'm not sure who had the brilliant idea of gathering a few incredible people together like Jane Abernathy from Human Scale and Annie Bevan from Mindful Materials to talk about materials and products, but it was a really great conversation. We talked about the challenges of specifying when you truly want to consider the health of people and planet, and even how transparency doesn't always get you the answer you need. So I'm going to just let this panel talk roll. I hope you find it as inspiring and informative as we did. Welcome this morning. So glad you could make it. Today's very green topic on toxicity and material transparency. So whether you are a practitioner uh, looking to specify, make better specifying decisions, or you are a manufacturer and you are looking to effectively address the topic of material transparency, you are in the right place today. We have some experts in the room today and uh, we're really excited to hear from them on this topic. My name is Abby Murray. I am CEO and co-founder of Mortar. I will be sitting back and listening into this panel of experts today. We are joined by a panel of sustainability advocates in the industry, whom I will let introduce themselves here in a moment. But we have John Strasner from ASID. We have Verda Alexander from Studio O Plus A, who will be bringing a perspective on navigating the sourcing of products as a designer and as a design firm. We have Jane Abernathy of Human Scale, who will be coming from a manufacturing perspective. Uh, and rounding out the team is Annie Bevan of Mindful Materials. And she's coming from a supportive angle, really for all involved, uh, supporting the industry through the power of information sharing and uh, the Mindful Materials database. I myself am a little in the Annie category as well. Uh, Mortar is also a supporting platform. So while I don't have nearly the knowledge that this crew has here today, I will be listening and I will be learning and uh, really using this session as an R&D tool for the development of Mortar in our approach to uh, really easier access to information. A little history on me, uh, my career shifted to the creation of Mortar only five-ish years ago. And Mortar is a search engine for pros serving the built environment. And in that shift, I really became more exposed to the realities of our industry's role in carbon emissions and began to tune in. So um, that is kind of where I'm coming from today. 
And of the energy consumed in the U.S., half is consumed by the built environment. And between the construction of buildings or embodied carbon, and this includes uh, materials manufacturing and the usage of the said buildings or operating, which might be a good topic for another webinar. But the built environment really takes a toll. And where do we as either manufacturers or practitioners play a role in making a change? Where do we start? How much of an impact can we really have? And I look at it as an immense opportunity. If we're making this much of an impact, think of the positive we could make in climate impact. So we at Mortar really made a commitment to get involved. How could we as a digital platform enter the challenge and really our mindset began to shift from the industry's digital search tool to Mortar as a sustainable resource, replacing product catalogs and spec sheets, lessening travel and trend shopping through the display of digital showrooms, online project team collaboration, cutting down on samples by helping teams virtually narrow in on final decisions, and taking it a step further, how could we give exposure to and drive demand for the companies and the products and the projects who are doing the work to impact the environment in a positive way. So we, we came together, we showcased certified companies, we showcase sustainable products and certification tags and really allow users to visually select the companies and the products that align with their sustainability goals I, this is my research project today is listening in and figuring out where we need to go with the direction of our product to ensure that we're meeting the needs of these users, of these manufacturers, um, and really bringing to the forefront those companies in the industry and those practitioners in the industry who are wanting um, to, make, to make that impact and source better. And teaser alert here, but... We have collaborated with several, several industry um, associations, including ILFI and WELL. And um, now we're working together with Mindful Materials. So Annie and I have been in talks and our dev teams are connected. And we're looking at ways to incorporate all of that data from their database into our platform um, and really be able to serve the industry in a, a more positive way. So... This is a little teaser. Uh, Annie, I don't know if you want to add any layers here, but we featured human scale uh, product here with a green tag. Uh, this kind of gives you a little illustration of what's to come with mindful materials and mortar connectivity. Anything to add there, Annie? I think what's great is not only are you going to be able to get sustainability data, but you'll be able to see it beautifully displayed in a space. Um, so we'll give a really good design perspective, but then also you'll be able to see the sustainability data right there in the Mindful Materials library that's been vetted by experts. So uh, human scale with the Balo chairs looking good here. And uh, then you can find the Mindful Materials information right away, uh, just like that. So yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to get a free product plug there. Yeah. Right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is exactly kind of how mortar works. You see those product tags, green products are, are featured in elevated by their green tag that highlights uh, sustainable products that they've achieved certain certifications. So gives you a little glimpse of what mortar is up to. John, do you want to, do you want to take things over from here? 
Yeah, sure. Verda, you want to join me? Come on. We're going to, uh, we're going to talk to Jane and Annie, and um, I think we're going to round the horn real quickly and just uh, introduce ourselves. We're going to take two minutes to do that. I'm John Strasner, Director of Industry Partnerships here at ASID, and I do a podcast with Verda Alexander, my partner in crime, where we really try to uh, find voices outside of our industry who are carrying the torch of sustainability. Verda, you're muted. I was about to say, and welcome to Break Some Dishes, but uh, wait, that's not right. We're not on Break Some Dishes. I know, we can't say it, but we really try to bring um, outside voices to the industry who are doing some really inspirational and innovative things. And so that's sort of, you know, where Verda and I come in on this conversation. And Verda, yeah, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Verda Alexander. I'm with Studio O Plus A over here in San Francisco. And I became really concerned a few years ago about the environment and about climate change and decided that pretty much I wanted to devote every waking hour and all of my efforts, work efforts to the cause and Break some dishes is just one one aspect of what we're trying to do is is yeah learn from those inside and outside of our industry that are breaking the mold and and using design and innovation to make change and I'm really encouraged lately I feel like snowball effect avalanche things are happening and it's very exciting and we want to be part of that change. Yeah, Annie, why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. I yeah. know you can do it quick because Annie is a fast talker. Thank you. Thank you, John, for reiterating that today publicly. Uh, <laughs> I've don't been told to him. slow down. Don't mind him. So. <laughs> but I am Annie Bevan. I am the executive director of Mindful Materials. Uh, for those of you who might not know Mindful Materials, we're a digital library resource that is uh, vetted and piece of information to find sustainability data from manufacturers that meet a certain baseline criteria of what is a mindful material. I've been in this space for some time. I actually come from a manufacturing background. My aha moment uh, actually was as the global head of sustainability for a communication cable manufacturer. We had spent years investing in EPDs, HPDs, the alphabet soup of eco labels. And when it came time to make a sale and all the stars were aligning, sustainability didn't matter when it came down to it. And so that really inspired me to bring together a collective voice of manufacturers because all of my peers sort of found that to happen. What was a result of that a loud voice from the manufacturing community was the AI materials pledge and then a contractor commitment, then an owner initiative, and now a new manufacturer pledge that's coming out there um, and brought me to this position as executive director of Mindful Materials because we are here as a by industry for industry initiative to make connect the dots and make collaborative change together. So really appreciate you having me and really excited to talk about the passion of my life today, uh, healthy materials and making collaborative change. So thanks. Yeah. Well, here. We're happy to have you for sure. And, and we have Jane with us today. Right. So I'm the chief sustainability officer at human scale and we manufacture office ergonomic tools. So that ends up being like seating, how to adjustable seating, uh, uh, sorry, hydrodestable tables, seating, a lot of tools that adjust the, bot- the workplace to the body as opposed to the other way around. Um, so it's nice that we have a, a premise to start off with, with creating healthier workspaces, doing something that's good for people. And then we extend on that to try and create 
you know, good for the planet and use healthy materials while we're doing it. We don't want to keep you in a good body posture by surrounding you by carcinogens, for example. Yeah, yeah we've been on a journey for a while trying to see as a manufacturer, can we actually leave the world cleaner, better off? Can we make the world better by manufacturing? And we've been on that journey for a number of years now, um, making some progress. And, and it's been a really exciting, super challenging journey to be on. Yeah. And I think, you know, that as, as Verda will attest, this is like my favorite topic next to talking about plastic. And I think that I was sort of propelled into this conversation with working with Jane when I was with Human Scale and Jane was working so arduously to remove red list ingredients from Human Scale product. And I think that a lot of our industry, a lot of people don't understand what we mean when we talk about material toxicity. And I think it's because we all just assume that the desk we're sitting at is safe. We assume that the materials that surround us are mm-hmm. safe. And meanwhile, we're spending 90% of our time in a built surrounding with materials that have been fabricated. And um, I just want to point out, you know, we all just think that somebody is regulating this. And the truth is that, you know, we have this agency called the EPA who comes out and says, we don't regulate use of chemicals. And so here we are today making like 40,000 chemicals across the globe. And the EPA has banned, what, five? Is that yep. what they've banned? Five. five. So, I mean, just to put it in perspective, it's kind of a big deal. And if if you really want to get nerdy and you want to look at Toxic Substance Control Acts, starting with 1976, where everything gets grandfathered in, and basically you're allowed to introduce a new chemical before you know what that chemical does to people is kind of crazy. And to think that we actually have babies being born that are pre-polluted, this is a problem, right? So let's level set a little bit and, and try to explain what we mean by material transparency. So Jane, when you think about material transparency, you know, through the perspective of a manufacturer, what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, for us, it means, and I think this is very common among idea among manufacturers, is that we should probably know all the ingredients that go into our products. It might be surprising for, fo- for folks when you start this conversation to realize manufacturers don't generally know. When we specify, we tend to specify, for example, polycarbonate or nylon, nylon six in this specific shit, Pantone shade or whatever color system we're using, or we'll specify this you know, grade of, of material, but there's a lot of different versions of that grade of material. It can be made in a number of different ways from a number of different suppliers. The, the exact recipe is not necessarily known to us, whether there are additives and like what are those additives made of is not known to us as manufacturers. So it means going and finding that information, not just from the folks who sell us the component, but asking them like who actually put together that plastic, who has the you know formulator of that plastic and find out from them the full recipe and then do that for every single part and piece of the product and then add it all up to share that information with customers. And it's really important, I think, that we use standard ways of sharing this information because when we get questions that are out of the norm, it's, it can be a phenomenal amount of work getting all this data, which is, you know, thousands of parts and pieces that each have their own recipe of, you know, 15, 20 ingredients, you can spend all your time just looking at trying to manage the data and not actually using the data to make better decisions. So ultimately, things like declare labels, HPDs are so useful to make sure that everyone's looking at it the same way, presenting it in the same format, and you can kind of look and see 
relatively straightforward with the information you're looking for, then you can use that to make a purchasing decision, much like you do with, a, with food and you have a nutritional label to understand what's in that product. Am I okay with that? And then you can make a, an informed decision. Yeah, <clears throat> we need labels. We need labels on furniture so you can look underneath of a desk and, and see, does it have formaldehyde or, or not, right? But Annie, why is like why are we so worried about toxicity? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Because I'm not, I'm not really eating the desk. I'm not really eating this carpet. Boy, we could get into a large toxicological discussion, but because I'm not a toxicologist, I'm not going to get into that necessarily <laughs> today. But I think you really covered it well, John, and what you said in the very beginning is that this isn't regulated. And I think there's a need for to drive manufacturers to understand what is their compositional chemistry and the in the demand from the industry asking for transparency has really dri- driven an understanding of what is in what is in the products and then what is toxic chemistry within the products. Now I feel like we're at the kind of crux of the industry to, to make a change. We can't just continue to ask for transparency. We actually have to focus on getting better now. So we now know what's in our products. How are we optimizing? How are we eliminating toxic chemistry from our products? So I feel like the, the inherent value of transparency, it's not only sta- a standard way to be able to share this information. Totally agree with you, Jane. It should be based on standard a standard approach. But we now need to eliminate and remove and optimize products so that chemistry is no longer in there uh, to reduce the risk of exposure of toxic chemistry to people because you can touch things, you can breathe things, uh, you can have other types of exposures to chemistries, even if you're not eating them. (laughs) So even if you're not ingesting them, because when you're touching them, you still touch your mouth. And I think all of us are much more inherently aware of our surroundings and germs and antibacterial lotion right. uh, after the, the past year and a half or so. So yeah. who doesn't uh, love the smell of a new car, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if I can just add in, I think it's one thing that maybe doesn't hit people at first is you think that all the ingredients and the materials are in the product and they just stay there. And it doesn't necessarily, that like over the life of the product, that doesn't happen. It's really clear when you look at something that's a bit worn, those particles have gone somewhere. You know, it doesn't stay in the product the way you might be thinking when you're first purchasing the product. Yeah. What type of regulations are out there today for that transparency of, of materials? Do we have regulations in place? Are they in some places and all places? Well, I mean, you can legally do anything you want. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to address that just in kind of my experience with material transparency. This, for me, it started about eight or 10 years ago when I first was diagnosed with a thyroid disorder. And my doctor said, you have to right now go throw away your couch, throw away your rug, throw away your mattress, buy vintage, buy something that was made before 19. I don't remember what year she said, because that chair, that carpet, that mattress has PBDs in it, flame retardants, PBDEs in it. And this, they're not regulated. They weren't regulated. They weren't banned. And a few years later, a label came out. It was a transparency label. It didn't mean that they couldn't use the flame retardant. It just meant that that it had to be on the label that it was used. It was a step in the right direction. Finally, finally, I don't can't believe how long it took to ban PBDEs, but they finally got banned. So yeah, yeah. regulation and it makes I'm getting angry. It makes me mad. We're all here. Yeah. We all have jobs because there's not enough regulation, right? Oh, yeah. I Annie, mean, you're doing what you're doing. Jane, you're doing what you're doing because we have to do it ourselves. It's voluntary. There's still point, yeah. way too much yeah. toxic crap in all of the materials that we specify. 
in our industry still to this day. And it's not easy to figure it out. I wish there was regulations. That's what we really ultimately need. Mm. And California is one of the leaders in regulation. I was, I was just going <laughs> to confirm California, state of California has banned, not nationally, not globally. Just Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. My son, my son now also has a thyroid disorder. Wow. And I know it's the first time I ever saw a product label. I had ordered a table online and it came from California and I started unpacking it. And I'm like, there's formaldehyde in this. There's, I mean, they're starting to list all of these ingredients. What did I do? I packaged it back up and shipped it back because (laughs) I was so disturbed. Now, a lot of things in my home and my office probably have that, but it's just the transparency of knowing, much like a nutrition label, right? I know what's in I know what's in the stuff from McDonald's versus the stuff that I make from home. So I can make more educated decisions. But right now you're saying California is the only one that regulates that, that at least the sharing of the Well, they're the most forward-thinking firm. Okay. And I think that there's not enough regulation. And Verda, you and I just had Auden Schendler on. Um, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And Auden is a huge advocate of corporate responsibility. And, you know, he's, he says, stop making the consumer feel guilty because mm-hmm. we're consuming plastic or we're putting products in our homes and offices that contain toxic materials. There's got to be a level of corporate responsibility here, right? And Verda, I think, you know, you running a design firm, how overwhelming is it now? And how many you know, how many different levels of expertise does the designer have to be to be responsible? It's, it's big. Yeah. It's annoying. It's frustrating. We've put so many man hours into trying to figure out how we're going to specify correctly the right materials for the right project that are good for the planet and good for people. It is no easy task, even with transparency, it's no easy task. And I think definitely corporate responsibility is one thing, but I think ultimately regulation will take us much farther, much quick, much more quickly. Yeah, the day. Uh, Jane, you really, you know, has, you've taken human scale a long way down this path. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you catalyze that that movement within an organization? I think one of the things we did was we started uh, with something that's manageable. So we started with one product, started to understand what it takes to go down that path, how deep into the supply chain we have to go and, and figure out kind of what is it that we're taking on. Uh, then the next thing we did was we just started as- approaching it systematically. So as opposed to making it each product is a project to try and get this information, we, we started looking at what are all the systems in place, where are the decisions being made, where materials are being specified, where there's a point of like a leverage point. And we started systematically making the changes to make sure those um, areas were on board. So, for example, when people are designing new products in new product development, it's that's a leverage point where someone's about to make a decision on what material is being used. When we have a sourcing team and, you know, they're going to second source or they're going to try to um, often they'll do a, a, um, a cost reduction exercises or improvement exercises. They'll be looking at, at you know, finding other sources at those times. So we started to work really closely with our new product development team and our sourcing team. And then we built it into the way we operate so that those teams realize that this is just part of how we operate, that that's the bar. Like it has to meet this quality, it has to meet this color, and it has to have none of these ingredients as part of the, our quality team helps to support us in making sure that that is just part of the expectation of the product. 
We then also looked at all the points where we need to communicate that with suppliers and really try to look at this as a system to be established. Um, and so when we first contact a supplier to request a quote, we make sure it's clear that, you know, the expectations are set from that point on. It's in our supplier agreements, you know, that we that we're gonna require this information. So we have that instead of surprising anyone at the last at the end saying, Oh, and by the way, can you tell me what's in the product? It's from the get-go we have that conversation to say that we're going to ask for that information for you. If you want to do business with us, this is what it's going to, what's going to be involved. I think that that was kind of starting small and then building up and thinking about it systematically as we built, I think allowed us to really make it as, as feasible and achievable as possible. I think it can't be a standalone, siloed, one part of the organization that's working on it. It really has to be just part of how we operate as a whole company. Yeah, it has to be part of the process. And I definitely commend you for, and, and you, you have to be committed and, you have to ask questions and constantly, constantly research and say, why, why is this being used? And I, I still, to this day, love that story. You, we had Jane on our podcast and you told us about the anti-stain guard on chairs. And you, you asked, is this really necessary? What's in this? What if we didn't put it on a chair? Would anybody care? Would anybody notice? Would it, would it make a difference? And, and you eliminated it. Because it didn't. It didn't make a difference. It's just a stupid thing that we just all thought we needed. And I think it's all about questioning and being committed to and willing to change our process. And I do think that that, that then drives a market signal. So Jane, I don't know about you, but your ability to then integrate it throughout your entire company is because you're hearing from your customers that this matters. So I can say, and I think we can all be confident, regulation probably isn't coming soon enough. So the only thing we can do is rally together and all say, well, let's take the building industry on our backs and let's come together. It's a small lift if we all lift at the same time. Uh, and I feel like if we all continue to take action where we can, ask the questions, sh- say that it matters and start making decisions differently, uh, it will drive change throughout the entire value chain. So, so Jane's products, my products, uh, actually can, we, we can show our bosses, this matters. This is what our customers are asking for. We must optimize. We must reduce and eliminate this toxic chemistry because the reality is there, there is a business to run at the same time, but this is the business incentive to then incentivize with money to drive change and optimize the supply chain within the built environment. It's something that we can certainly all do um, collectively and collaboratively. Yeah, and Mindful Materials is a great tool. It doesn't give you the answers. It doesn't say green light, <laughs> red light, but it is a great place to start. And I feel like you my, you guys are adding tools and adding things like the now you have a label that you can put on your a sticker, that you can put on your binder or your or your material product, which I think is amazing. You guys have a section on social responsibility. I think that's really important for us to know that that these corporations, these manufacturers are stepping up and doing the right thing, not just in terms of toxicity, but also in terms of how they engage with their community and all of that. It's almost too much information. <laughs> it, it is an information overload. I could say that we do not come from a place that feeling one aspect of sustainability is more important than the other. All of it is important. Um, so we're looking at products and projects on the level of climate health, human health, ecosystem health, social health and equity in the circular economy. And that's how people can start to identify products that start to address these five buckets of sustainability. They might sound familiar to you if your firm has signed the AI materials pledge, because that is ultimately what a mindful material is. So our tool is set out there to just make it easier to find products that starting to reduce impact and address 
uh, those five buckets. So it, it is a lot of information, but it is it, it is at least trying to help align. So if your firm signed on, you can then yeah. at least start to find those products. Yeah. Uh, but to your point of tools, it's it's sort of like the collaboration we've been talking about with Mortar. How do we then disseminate this information into workflow tools? So sustainability is just front of mind and available when you're working. Yeah, right. like it always just pops up. But this is kind of a tricky conversation, right? There's a rabbit hole around every corner in this conversation. You eliminate one toxic material and then, so let's talk about that just for a minute because it can get a little bit tricky, right? Jane, you've had to fire suppliers because they didn't want to participate. So it's been very disruptive to your supply chain management, but but how does it work with toxic materials? You know, Are there times when you have to say, well, if, if I don't use this toxic material, I'm gonna use this toxic material and it's even worse. And I'm going to layer into his question with, you know, human scale is a large manufacturer. What about those smaller manufacturers and what is the cost involved in, in taking this on, you know, and can they do it and where should they start? So there's a lot there, Jane, for you to. <laughs> I'm covering all this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with that one, I think, is that. Um, it, of course, it depends of, on the supplier and what they're actually making, what the manufacturer is actually making. Um, we happen to have very complicated products. So smaller suppliers that are making, uh, that might have a shorter supply chain, you know, it might be proportionately uh, less work. We have you know, furniture that has textiles and mechanical and electronics and operate globally. So we have many, many deep supply chains to, to be working in. Sometimes like a smaller manufacturer might only be working with more local suppliers or might be working with less different materials or might not have electronics, for example, um, as part of their portfolio, depending, but it, it depends definitely on what their, their products are. If they're selling granite countertops and they basically have one material, then it's, you know, and they're, they're, you know, got one mine that they're buying, buying from, it's a very short supply chain. So, so it's hard to know. I think it's not necessarily the size of the company, but the breadth of the product portfolio and how complicated they are to how much owners it is to take on. That being said, like starting and just building on it is is always possible. So you might not take it on and have achieved, you know, labels for every single product next week, but taking the first step to say, let's look into this. Let's find out where those decisions are being made about materials. Let's see how we can influence how that's happening. Let's find, let's ask, start asking the questions. All those are always possible, even if you can't dedicate a full-time person to doing that. And then the other question about, what is the word? There's some, something trade-offs. What am I looking for here? You guys must know it. Regrettable substitution. Regrettable substitution. Whoa. That's the word I'm looking Who's for. Write that word. Exactly the. That's the what you're talking about, John. Is when, when you yeah. uh, so BPA is the, the sort of poster child for this, where there's lots of BPA-free, you know, labeled water bottles that then have BPF or BPS in them, which has basically the same chemistry structure and and has the same uh, effect on the human body. So it's not any better. It's just a different but very similar toxin, technically not BPA, so they're not lying to you, but it's not any better. And that's exactly what we want to to avoid, definitely. It, it is pretty challenging. We, we tend to use green screen to try to pre-screen the things that we're going to use to, to find out whether they're better or not. And that helps us get a deeper understanding of it. And there are cases where you know we've found something um, that we haven't yet found a substitution for. And to be quite honest, every single time we find a redless ingredient, it's an R&D project. It can be you know, a two-year-long project to replace that particular um, material in that particular product because we want all of our products to meet the quality requirements and our warranty requirements, which we have long-lasting products in order to 
you know, use our resources for as long as possible. So, so it is quite a lot of work. It is a case by case uh, situation as well. So there are a few. One that comes to mind that doesn't apply to us, but antimony in, in window shades is one where it's like a very clear, there's a code requirement to meet a certain flame retardant you know, requirement. There is no other chemistry known to be able to do that. So you basically have to use antimony if you're making window shades, from what I understand. Um, we, in furniture, I haven't seen that specific like code requirement butting up against um, specific chemistry. But what I've seen is that market availability butting up against the better chemistry. So we might find we don't want to use this chemistry. Maybe we find there's something else, but we can't find a reliable source for that for our operations to rely on. So we have to, yeah. there's some things for that that does happen. So somebody in the chat asked what the five buckets are, and I think this might be a good time to review those. It's human health, social health and equity, ecosystem health, climate health, and a circular economy or supporting a circular economy. And I have these up on my screen. I, didn't, I don't have them memorized. I should. Yeah, you nailed it. I should. But I think what's interesting is, you know, it's a holistic approach, right? John, we had Jason yeah. McClellan on our podcast and the first thing out of his mouth blew our minds because he, we were talking about the climate crisis. And he's like, well, it's not just that. It's this and this and this and this. You really have to take a holistic approach. Although I also do believe, because it can be hard, it can be overwhelming to try to address all of these buckets. If you do address one, say human health or say um, carbon footprint, right? You almost invariably do impact the others. They're all interconnected, which at least that's something, right? Yeah. And I think what's crazy is, you know, you go to the doctor, you're not feeling well. The doctor, what do they do? They check your your blood sugar, they check your cholesterol, they check all these things. Nobody ever runs a toxicity report, right? Can, can you imagine if, you know, you went to the doctor and, and the doctor said, well, let's just run a toxicity report. Oh my God, yeah. You have so much PVC in your blood right now, or you have so much, you know, PFCs running through your blood. We don't, so we don't measure it. We don't check on it. We just assume that we're safe. And if we're sick, it's because we all of a sudden developed allergies when we're 50 years old that we never had before, you know? So not to be an alarmist, but Verda, you know, I'm kind of an alarmist on this kind of thing. <laughs> but Annie, are you seeing more, you know, are you seeing from a mindful materials perspective? I know somebody just asked about green chemistry, sure. which, you know, we've had some amazing guests talking about green chemistry. But Annie, what are you seeing in that regard? And are you seeing more companies coming on board with mindful materials, figuring it out? Yeah. You know, we're sustainability professionals. We've been pushing this boulder up the hill for many years now and yeah. I'm relatively young, but I've been pushing the boulder up for about 17 years and it's been heavy, but I start, I'm starting to feel, and I feel like all of us are starting to feel, are we getting to the summit and we're going to start to feel it drift down the other side? Cause we are seeing on the mindful material side, we have 433 brands in our library, um, like 14,000 materials that have met the baseline criteria of what is a mindful material that's industry created. So we're certainly starting to see an uptick in manufacturers investing, getting that those criteria to actually be able to be considered a mindful material. And then what we're also seeing is users. I just had three calls with three different architect and design firms today to talk about, hey, I've heard about this mindful materials thing. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? I, I want to understand how to integrate this into our library. These are the types of conversations that I probably would have had two years ago on a daily basis, but it's, I don't know, 15 calls a week. It's, it's, it's getting yeah. to be 
a, a really exciting time and to, to be at the forefront of being able to provide solutions to enable the change to make it easier is mm-hmm. something that not just me, but the entire industry that is mindful materials is, I think, really excited to start to feel and see. Yeah. yeah. Even in our conversations with manufacturers and servicing firms, very rarely do we come across a conversation where they're not considering or um, looking to do more sustainable projects or release more sustainable products. And I think it it has so much to do with this community of people who have pushed that boulder, right? And are really dri- driving that conversation and education, education, education. I keep screaming and preaching, but the more you know, the more you'll care. And yeah. so how do we as a community continue to educate and continue to inform so that those conversations are had and we just continue to see more growth in that category? And I think that's really what's driven the shift. Yeah, everything is so super connected, right? Because, you know, what we're talking about with these toxic materials is like 90% of them, they're petroleum based. Right. So, you know, we're tearing the planet apart because we're digging up fossil fuels and we're releasing carbon into the atmosphere. And and Verda, I don't know who first told us, but but this, you know, sustainability, uh, environmental activism, climate change, it's a social equity issue. The people that are really most affected by our blatant disregard for uh, the effects of our actions are the people that are disenfranchised and disadvantaged. And it's these fence line communities that, you know, you're trying to you're trying to grow up. Uh, surrounded by oil refineries or chemical fat. It doesn't happen in the nice neighborhoods. So, you know, there's a social responsibility here that has to happen. Quite honestly, there's now a huge, I see one of the newest trends um, outside of the AI materials pledge, but that's a bucket, social health and equity. How can architects and designers start to ask questions? What standards should you be referring to? There's a lead pilot credit that's starting to address social equity. The AI materials pledge is starting to address address social equity, mindful materials has a bucket that addresses social equity. So manufacturers that are starting to think about this and think about not only their own manufacturing locations, but the supply chain and what type of social hotspots are we all seeing? I know Jane is a part of Living Product Challenge Certification, in which case you have many. Uh, There's a social hotspot assessment that you have to do to complete the certification, I'm pretty sure, right? So Yeah, and this is something we've we've been started digging into for the last while. And it is interesting as a manufacturer to kind of dig in and see some terms like glo- like local. What does that mean when you're a global manufacturer with offices in many different countries and and you know a supply chain that that is in many different places? So even unpacking things like that, it gets a little bit more complicated. Where it seems to be in uh, you know looking at social hotspots, there are a few tools and frameworks that are starting to be available. Um, they're not sort of as robust as I would like them to be yet. And most almost all the frameworks I've seen. Uh, in fact, all of them. So if anyone knows of, of a better of a framework that digs deeper than first tier suppliers, let me know. But all the frameworks I've seen look at your first tier suppliers, so the folks you buy material from directly. But we buy material from folks who then buy material from folks who then buy material from folks. And some of the biggest issues in the the world socially are, are going to be found somewhere linked, um, you know, could be somewhere in those supply chains. Um, especially when you look at electronics, a lot of risk of, of you know, chem, uh, conflict minerals and things like that in electronics. So we know there are social in, social issues that are associated with some materials, but they are so deep in the supply chain that it's hard to kind of get there. I've been looking and um, if, if anyone, I just put this out to the audience as well, if anyone knows the frameworks that, that are robust for digging deeper into the second, third, fourth tier suppliers, 
But one thing I have found is, is social is a much more complicated because it means so many different things. When you talk about material health, you can you can have a list of your hazards or your you know which which are your worst chemicals, and you can compare it to that list. There's toxicologists that can do assessments. There's sort of some robust tools and ways of looking at this. When we start to get into social, um, it can just mean so many different things from child labor to forced labor to equity and pay to just all these different types of conversations. Um, and then you also don't know once you audit and you go to to audit someone, you don't know how things change like the next week or the next month. Unlike materials, where if they change a material, it's going to be actually a lot harder for them to change a material because they'll have to likely change processes, they'll have to change their supplier. We might see a difference in the way the product functions. We often, if they change, make any material changes, it's usually pretty clear to us um, that they've they've made a change there. So, but if they hired a different person. We wouldn't necessarily know that and if that person happened to be, you know, hired by someone who we hired, who hired third, fourth tier in the supply chain. If they hired someone who was underage, you know, that's very hard to find. It feels to me like we're at the point in the conversation in social where we used to be with materials like five years ago. So I feel like we're starting to, you know, there's more momentum, more tools being created. We're not there yet. Um, there's definitely room for improvement, but there's intention, there's there's work being done, and I'm looking forward to actually making well, more and more impact yeah, the, in the area. The just yeah. label is great that yeah, that's put out by good. ILFI and B Corp, we just put in mm-hmm. our application for that. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. So yeah, at least there's a few tools out there. Jane, mm-hmm. Annie teed it up for you perfectly. And I know. I thought you were going to take it. Yeah. I, I did. Yeah, I, did. Yeah. I, did. <laughs> I was too interested in making sure people talk about social responsibility. <laughs> yeah, that's also, since you mentioned we're pursuing Living Product Challenge, we are, this is kind of a teaser, but we're about to announce in the next week or so, it'll go out to press, that we have actually achieved a Living Product Challenge for 25 of our products. So that was very exciting. It's awesome. the majority of our products by far. So if we look at sales, volume that's about 60% of our product that add a, a positive impact, at least 10% positive for climate, energy, water, you know, have zero waste, you know, and have had all those reviews and scrutinies for the social impact as well. Good job. We're very excited to Congratulations, share that. That's huge. That's huge. That's huge. I know yeah. we're running low on time. I don't want to run over Abby, but I wanted to ask Annie a quick question with mindful materials, you know, looking at where you are right now, how far how far you guys come? What's your what's your north star right now? Where you know what's your where do you guys want to where do you want to get to? Yeah, we have a hairy audacious goal as a community, um, and I say this because I just happen to be the the mouthpiece for this community at this point in time. Uh, there's a lot of people who are involved in this effort. We have a goal to make mindful materials the norm on every project, not just those seeking green building certifications. So we are here to provide that education, advocacy, awareness tools to make it easier to find these types of products and to try and inspire people to make one product different, one product change on one project, and then start to, just like Jane said, on the manufacturer side, start with one product and then go from there, start with one project product and go from there in the project level uh, space. And we're trying to connect the industry. And then ultimately, this is something that isn't uh, totally out there yet, but we are thinking, how do we how do we make this easier to understand? So is there an opportunity to, you know, Verda, you mentioned still a lot of information. How do we streamline this? What if there was a way to score products and then projects on how well they're doing when it comes to materials action? If people are thinking about, oh, just need to find the highest number instead of 
understanding 100 parts per million versus 1,000 parts per million, we can get more practitioners on board to think about and make different decisions. So that would be amazing. That's what we're that's what we're shooting for, and more to come at Greenbelt 2021. Yeah, I know it's already 12:46. So this has been an awesome conversation. I think one remaining question that I would have is where to start. And I think that probably varies from individual to individual, firm to firm. But I think the common theme that that we heard here today is start somewhere. Pick a thing and start somewhere. Start with a product. Whether you're manufacturing it or you're installing it, start with one. I mean, Jane has a whole list of of products to start with, you just mentioned here. And Verda, I know you've talked a little bit about just the pains of the design process and trying to source and specify the right products, but you know, picking one or or choosing a path and going down that and then embedding that in documenting. We we have this thing called documented processes followed by off, right? So what Jane has done is started with one product. Verda, I know you guys are all working on a process that is documented and followed by all. So I think what would be nice is if we could follow up with our attendees here today and maybe send some resources, we'll link some up. And if all of you want to share with me some resources, checklists, questions that you ask your suppliers, things you require of your designers, let's share a batch of resources with the attendees today so that they have something to start with and a place to go because they're, there are rabbit holes down every little uh, nuance of these conversations. So uh, I think that's the biggest overwhelming piece is where to start. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that, I feel like I actually just put out a pledge to it, our firm, it's on our website. And the very first pledge is that we, you just can't know everything and you can't wait until you know everything. Yeah. You have to just Don't put start. one foot in front of the other and maybe make a mistake or a lot of mistakes, but you have to do something, like you said, Abby, one thing. So yeah, I can add that pledge to the resources. And we're hoping to have an eco playbook out by the end of summer, which is basically our process of how to design not just beautiful spaces for right now, but beautiful spaces that will give us a beautiful future, right? That will allow for a beautiful future, which is what we need to be thinking about we're not seeking perfection. We're seeking progress. So one step you know, at a time. Yeah. Yep. yep. All right. Um, well, I know we have some comments and some questions, but I believe most of them were answered. There was a good question about um, why are toxins used? I mean, for is it just for regulation or to make the product last or why would they be in there in the first place? I think that's a good question that we might maybe should address, which I'll maybe, maybe I'll address. Um, regulations is definitely a possibility of one reason. It's often inexpensive and it, and it can make things more durable. So really it's often cost. Finding a better, it, it's usually, you know, the industry standard. Very often it's um, uh, the status quo is hard to change. So it's hard to find better um, alternate materials that are available. Why they get used in the first place is often cost. It's often just very cheap to use them. Cost and code, I'd say, right? To yeah. your window window shade example. But I can I can say that from the communication cabling manufacturer side, there are only few jacket materials that pass a burn test. And so we we actually have to use only a certain types of chemistry. So, and one of that chemistries is PVC. We have red list free chemistry, but it's four times more expensive as a raw material than PVC. So to Jane's point, it is cost and code that really drive 
these types of chemistries required to be used in some ways. Yeah. But we're making technological advancements at all the time. And as long as you start to know what's in your product, I think then you can start to optimize, just like Jane was mentioning. I think too, you know, there's a lot of money involved. So a lot of these chemical companies are making a lot of money manufacturing a few of these most popular chemicals. Some of the most popular chemicals in the globe are toxic, but but they're making so much money manufacturing these. They're not going to shut a factory down just because we're complaining about it when there's no regulation that says what they're doing is illegal, right? So that's a really big part of it is, I mean, I think one of the things that I really learned from uh, talking to Odd Schendler was when you look at corporate responsibility, a lot of companies will say, oh, we, we think the planet is great and look at our you know, 120 page corporate uh, responsibility report. But at the same time, look at the politicians that they're supporting. Look at the lobbying that they're doing and it's what happens behind the scenes. And these chemical, I, you know, I sound like a, some kind of a radical saber waving, you know, tree hugger. But the reality is that these chemical companies are very powerful and they're just not going to stop making this stuff overnight. It's not going to happen. So it happens with what we specify. And I think, Verda, what you're finding out is when a design firm says, you know what, we're just not going to put that in the project, then that's going to make people start to reevaluate the decisions that they're making. Yeah, designers have a lot of power to move. A lot of power. A lot better than they think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You might think you're just picking a product because it's beautiful, but if it you're also picking a product because it has sustainability attributes, then you tell a manufacturer about that. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. makes sustainability leaders day, and then it also makes them invest more in sustainability. Uh, so it is a amazing chain of events. And I love the yeah. the photo that Abby showed earlier in the presentation um, of the human scale product. It's a beautiful it's beautiful product, and it, guess what? You can be you can be sustainable and beautiful together. It happens. <laughs> it does, it's not all thatched roof and uh, burlap. <laughs> you know, another uh, wonderful comment that came in was about how to share this and educate with emerging professionals in the mm-hmm. student category. So I think that's another takeaway that we can think about. And I don't know if there's any comments in the room today, but I know. With Mortar, we have a Mortar in the Classroom initiative that we will kick off again this fall. And we go to different uh, campuses across the country. I know we did that with ASID pre-COVID. Hopefully do that again. But talking with students and helping them understand the technology out there. But we will also make a commitment today to ensure that the education surrounding sustainability passes through our Mortar in the Classroom initiative as well. So uh, definitely something that that we will commit to today. Yeah, well, Verda, shout out to Royce uh, from Mohawk, right? They're doing things with Ohio State University to teach students how to, I mean, part of her scrap culture, right? Teach students, um, you know, the implications of their, of their specification decisions. Yeah. yeah, and Royce is teaching at Drexel, a materials class. So yeah. I'm sure she's educating friend Royce. those students. All right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of people out there doing the right thing. It's really interesting. This year, I have had multiple conversations with universities reaching out to us to say, hey, how can I include Mindful Materials Library into my curriculum? I teach a healthy materials class at this design college or university. Do you think that more and more professors are seeking to educate the the young and think it's so important because then they can just come in and already know this stuff instead of having to go back and learn and teach old dog new tricks? And gosh, with the purchasing power being millennials in two to three years, the largest purchasing power, look out. And we are 
That's when the that's when the boulder is going to fall fall down the hill. <laughs> the avalanche. The avalanche. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're reaching a point, I think, where you know, um, Bert and I have been talking to people. You know, you've got people now that are in the sustainability field that went to school to in environmental science, and you know, Jane, you started doing what you're doing because you're an industrial designer. You were designing product, and you were worried about, oh my God, and the better I, the better job I do designing product, the more stuff people buy, the more it ends up in landfills, or the more impact it has. So, you know, it's it, that's a great personal connection to where you are today. But we're seeing, you know, this new generation of of people that went to school to learn about this, you know, so mm-hmm. we're getting there. And, and just the generation coming up is so much more caring for the environment. And I'm, I'm putting a label on them, but I will say even in our office, um, Haley Harms, I don't know, I'm giving her a shout out, but she was a huge advocate in ridding us of our water bottles that we were supplying in our bridges, in our conference rooms. And so I'm like, oh yeah, why are we doing that? Why don't we supply them all? are reusable and why, you know, why don't we install a water fountain and just things like that, even in the office setting, you're seeing these, this new generation that cares so deeply about the environment, they're going to push change. And to the student, back to the students again, they are over and over, we're we're speaking with these students, they're required to source sustainable products in their projects. It's, It's not a, it's, it's not even a question anymore. It's a requirement, which is Kudos to all of these professors out there in these A&D schools who are amazing, but that's something we have to pay attention to and ensure that they have all the information and accessibility to source the right products, which mm-hmm. is where financial materials comes in and mortar and human scale and all of us in this room, really, right? So um, kind of cool to see how that generation is, is so deeply embedded in this conversation. I, I just have one more point. Somebody brought up the Alliance for Healthy Design. And I've been talking to Maria, who leads that organization. My sister, who is not, my sister and I finally got to talk the same language. We're best friends, but we are different. And she, she just became a mom and she started to understand what is in products after becoming a mom. And I think we talk B2B a lot, but there is such an opportunity to educate consumers about the reality of chemistry and toxicity and and yeah. open people's eyes to yeah. to change and then really drive big time change this is not just built environment right this is now now moms getting on their their knowledge bank here and, and changing yeah. things so it, it, i think it, it could be a really interesting opportunity in the asid space and residential design space to really drive some change well yeah. the moms are the ceos of these companies that Absolutely. are our clients and if our clients are asking for it, well, damn it, the designers are going to step into place that much faster. Amen. Amen. Yeah. What are your babies crawling on? You know, uh-huh. <laughs> they yeah. care about that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All right. This was awesome discussion, John. Any any ending recap notes? Uh, my only recap, Verda. I don't know if you've got anything, but this is great. It's always. It's always nice to talk with Annie and Jane about stuff like this that, you know, your knowledge base runs so deep. Verda and I, I think, consider ourselves blessed that we decided to do something that kind of brings us into this conversation. We're able to 
hear your thought process and we're able to be a part of these conversations. So they're huge, but you know, they're only part of it. You know, words are words, actions are actions, and we have to keep pressing. I, I know Verda, you're really active in your community. And I think you could speak personally from that, but that's what we all have to do. We all, we all have to push regulation. We have to get active within our own communities. Um, I call it the holy trilogy of sustainability. You've got to, you've got to engage corporate support. You've got to engage community and uh, you've got to get, regulation moving in the right direction. And I'll turn it over to Verda to add anything I missed. I guess, Abby, when you first introduced us, you said this panel of experts, I feel like I'm I'm no expert and I learned a lot here today <laughs> from Annie I'm and not. Jane. And I wanna thank them for Jane for creating these healthy products and, and doing the due diligence and Annie for providing an incredible tool that is only getting better by the minute. And Abby, you as well at, for, yeah, a few years back, mortar. realizing that that little green leaf was such a critical part of mortar. So thank you all. Thanks for having us. Appreciate thank everybody's you. time. All right. Well, we will follow up with more um, after the fact on demand. This will be available. We're going to share as many resources as we can to help you in your next steps in the sustainability movement that we are trying to push. and. We will be in touch. Any questions that come in after the fact, we'll respond to as well. So look forward to continuing this conversation outside of this Zoom room today. Take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye.